0: Our sermon text today is uh, from the book of 1 John chapter 3. Probably not, as, as all these texts have been so far, probably not the first verse or passage you think about when you think about Christmas. We had a contest uh, to guess where I would be preaching from on Christmas time. No one probably would have picked this. I might not have picked this. But uh, we're going to look mainly at one verse, verse 8, but for the sake of context, we're going to read the first 10 verses of the passage. So if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1-10, through ten, give ear to the reading of God's holy word. John writes, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. let's, uh, Let's pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for giving us your word. Thank you that you have revealed yourself in it in the way of salvation through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. You have revealed in its pages for us. And not only that, uh, you have opened our eyes by the work of your Spirit that we might know him by faith uh, and come to him for for life and salvation. And we pray as we know that uh, we cannot begin to understand your word as clear as it is, uh, we cannot understand it rightly on our own, and so we ask once again that you would work in us by your Holy Spirit, that you might give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, we've been, as Rob alluded to, uh, if you haven't been here, we've been going through uh, the last couple Sundays, including this one, uh, some texts that are not your normal, uh, normal traditional Christmas texts. Uh, it would have been easy to do that, uh, to do that once again, and, and we'll do that again in the future. But I thought it might be helpful to take a look at just a few passages over these, these three Sundays prior to Christmas, to look at a few passages that don't tell us the what of Christmas, about Christ's birth, the historical account of it, but that tell us the why, why Jesus came, why he was incarnate, why God sent his only son, uh, and so, as we often hear at this time of year, people talk about Jesus being the reason for the season. That's what I thought we would look at, is the reason for the season, why why God sent his son in the first place, why he came into the world and was born of Mary that first Christmas morning. Uh, and so, our passage this morning, we're going to look at mainly at verse 8. We'll look at the rest of the text as well, but verse 8 primarily. And, it gives us the reason why Jesus wasn't was uh, born of Mary and incarnate uh, the word became flesh as John 1:14 talks about uh, we're going to focus on verse 8 where it says whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning and then he says the reason the son of god appeared now the reason he was revealed the reason he was was made flesh the reason the son of god appeared was to do what was to destroy the works of the devil. That last sentence, the last part of that sentence is what we're going to look at for the most part this morning, Lord willing. Uh, last Sunday, if you were here, we looked at 1 John 1.15, where Paul says that Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? To save sinners of whom I am, he says, of whom I am chief. And that is still, still certainly true. And I think the reason we're looking at in 1 John 3 is not unrelated to that purpose. They're they're both uh, part of the same purpose. So when John says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, that also has to do with saving sinners. What does it mean, though, for the Lord Jesus to destroy the works of the devil? What does it mean that that's what He came to do? That that's why He was made manifest or why He appeared? That's what we're going to look at, Lord willing, today. And so. The first way that I'd like to suggest, we're not going to look at every possible way, everything Jesus is doing, we wouldn't have time in one sermon to do that. But the first way that uh, we should look at, I think, this morning, the first way that Jesus came or, or appeared to destroy the works of the devil, it's actually mentioned earlier in this passage back in verse 5. It's a, John uses the same kind of phrase in verse 5. He says, you know that he appeared, that's Jesus, he appeared in order to do what? In order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. In in his commentary on 1 John, Calvin says that this purpose, taking away sins, is really just another way of saying the same thing we read in verse 8 when he talks about destroying the works of the devil. How did Jesus, how is he destroying the works of the devil? Well, the first way is by taking away sin. By taking away sins. That's why he's, that's why he came. And so, When John says that Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil, he's really just restating the same thing he said in some ways uh, back in verse 5 when he talks about Jesus appearing, coming to take away sins. In taking away sins, that's one of the main ways Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Now, what what does it mean to take away sins? What does it mean that Jesus appeared and came to take away uh, sins? Once again, I think the first thing we have to be reminded of is, um, we say this all the time around Christmas, but you can't separate the manger of Christmas from the cross of Christ. You cannot isolate in such a way uh, the manger and the birth of Christ as if it had nothing to do with or wasn't primarily to do with his coming to die in our place for our sins. That is why he was born. If it wasn't for him coming to die for our sins, he would have had no need, no reason uh, to become a man in the first place and to become incarnate, uh, the Son of God. So the Son of God became incarnate, taking on to himself a true human nature for the, for the primary purpose of dying in the place of sinners. It doesn't sound like the message of Christmas, but it is. It's the main, it's the main message in some ways. He died as an atoning sacrifice to pay the sins, pay for the sins of his people. And so Jesus, why did he come? He came to live in our place, the life that we have failed to live. He came to die in our place, the death that we deserve for our sins. And why did he do that? He did that so that we might be made right with God. On our own, outside of Christ, as sinners, we are anything but right with God. We are at enmity with God. We are children of disobedience, children of of wrath and Jesus came to die, to live and to die in our place that we might be reconciled to God. I don't know if you've ever, ever asked yourself this. I, I suppose many of you, I hope, have. How can a, a wicked, rebellious sinner like us ever be made right with a holy God? Many, many have always assumed, oh, we, we're just, everybody's okay with God, God's okay with everybody, but it's not, not the case. Have you ever asked yourself that question? Have you ever asked yourself, And looked in the mirror and said, how can a holy God accept a wicked sinner like me? That's that's the message of of the gospel. That's what Paul, uh, you know, when Paul says, Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul knew the weight of his sin. He knew the depth of his sin. He knew what he did not deserve was God's grace and mercy. And yet God saved him. And so he looked at himself as an example for those who would believe on Christ. Like, if he'll save me, he'll save anybody. That's what he looked at. We looked at last week. Have you asked yourself, how can a holy God accept someone like me? The only answer to that question is Jesus Christ coming in the form of a man and dying in our place and rising from the grave. What can be done about my sins, we should ask, which separate me from God? How can sinners like us, how can we be forgiven for our sins and be made right with God? The Lord Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, is the only answer to those questions, the only right answer to those questions. He came to, as it says in verse 5, he came to take away sin. He came to take away our sins. If you're a Christian this morning, he came to do that so you might be forgiven and reconciled to God. What is forgiveness? This is a this is like a dictionary lesson this morning. What does it mean to be forgiven? What is forgiveness? We often pray as we even did this morning that God might forgive us for our sins. Uh, The word forgive has the idea of sending something away, sending something away or removing it. Psalm 103, verse 12, one of my favorite psalms, it says in in verse 12, it describes God's forgiveness this way. It says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he do what? Remove our transgression from us. It's like if you ever read uh, Pilgrim's Progress, his sin was pictured as a, as a, a load on his back. And he was on a journey, and it made his journey very difficult. It was like a heavy load, and it finally rolled off, and it rolled into the tomb and was sealed at the tomb when he got to the foot of the cross. His pack fell off his back and rolled into that tomb. That was a picture of it being removed from him, his sins being removed by the cross of Christ and buried in that tomb never to come out again. Now this brings to my mind, maybe it does to yours as well, the Old Testament image from the book of Leviticus chapter 16 of the scapegoat of the scapegoat. There in that chapter we're told about two goats that were used as a sin offering on the day of atonement. The first goat what what happened to the first goat? The first goat was to be slaughtered as a sacrifice unto the Lord for the people's sin. But there was a second goat. And what was the second goat's role? The people's sins would be confessed over the head of the second goat, and someone would lead that goat off into the wilderness never to come back. It's a picture of God removing, paying for the sins of the people through the the, the atonement of the first goat, and the second one carried the people's sins away, having had their sins confessed over his head. It's a removal, a taking away of sin. Those two goats, in a sense, put together are a picture of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Same same idea, John 1.29. So on the cross, what did Jesus do? He took away our sin. He made atonement for our sins and he also carried our sins away far from us as far as the east is from the west that means as far as you can possibly imagine you know when, when god forgive god isn't like us thank god he's not like you and me you know we we tend to be forgiving of people uh, not quite as east as far as east is from the west we hold grudges we you know keep something in our back pocket god doesn't do that he doesn't remove your sins a couple feet away or around the corner or behind his back only to bring him back out and and place them back on you. We'd have no hope if he did that. He removes your sins in his son as far as the east is from the west. Isaiah 53 verse 6 puts it this way, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone in case we'd all think it. well he doesn't mean me. Everyone to his own way. And then what does it say? And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He imputed your sin and mine to Christ and punished it in him on the cross. He laid all of our iniquities on him. That is how he saved. That's the only reason that you and I can be forgiven because Jesus actually took the wrath of God in our place on the cross for our sins. And so I asked this morning, have your sins been taken away by the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation from your sins. Or are you trusting in your own supposed goodness? Do you tell yourself, well, I'm a pretty good person. You know, some people like to use Hitler as the only person that he's the, he's the, I'm not like Hitler. I'm not like those bad people out there. No, it, we're just as bad. God doesn't accept any of us. The Bible says on our own, the Bible says by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in God's sight. None of us are good. We're not basically good. There's none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says the only one who is righteous is the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's His perfect righteousness that we need in order to be made right with God. Well, that brings us to the second, the second way I'd like to look at uh, how how Jesus is destroying the works of the devil by His uh, coming and by His death and resurrection, and that's by sanctifying His people. He removes, takes away our sins from us. He forgives our sins. He also destroys the work of the devil by sanctifying his people. Look at verses 8 through 10. John writes, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And then he says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So the devil, he says, has been sinning from the very beginning. And so when Jesus came, one of the things he came to do, you could say was to undo all that, to undo the damage that the devil has done from the beginning when he tempted Adam and Eve and they ate of the forbidden fruit And sin and misery has become uh, rampant throughout the world ever since. All of the sin and misery in this world, all of the disease, all the death, all the war, all the things like that that you can imagine, all of that came as a result of sin, and all of that is the devil's work. And so Jesus, one of the ways he's coming to undo all that, to destroy all that, is by freeing his people from the power of sin to rule over us. The old classic hymn, we didn't sing it this morning, but we sing it often, uh, the Solid Rock, by Augustus Toplady, puts it this way. Rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed, and here it is, be of sin the double cure, save me from its guilt and power. Save me from its guilt and its power. Christ removing our sins from us and atoning for our sins, removing our guilt, that's the first part. What's the second part? Saving us from the power of sin. Saving us from the reign of sin. If you're a Christian, before you came to Christ, sin, you were a slave to sin. You were ruled by sin. You may not have felt it. You may not have noticed it. You were a slave to sin. When you come to Christ, Christ breaks the power of sin over you. You're st- you still sin. Don't get me wrong. And 1 John is very clear about that. We'll see even in this passage. He's very clear about that. But if you're in Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. In fact, you're still a slave. But what are you a slave or who are you a slave to? You're a slave to God. You're a slave unto righteousness. You have a new master, a much better master. In fact, you know, if you're a believer in Christ, you should know that before you came to Christ, you were dead in sin and you were enslaved to sin. And Paul says such in Ephesians chapter two, the first three verses, he writes this. This is I always call this. You no, know, if you're old enough to, as me, you might remember this is your life, an old TV show back when there were four channels and not a thousand channels. Uh, it says uh, Paul writes, "This is your life, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit." That is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature, you know, down to our very nature, down to our bones, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is not a flattering picture, but that's the biblical picture of every person outside of Christ. Dead in sins and trespasses, following the course of this world, you know, going with the flow, doing what everybody else does, that's that's part of being in sin. And then following whom? It's a strange title, strange sounding title to us. Who is he talking about when he talks about following the prince of the power of the air? He's talking about the devil. And notice what he says, not just following him, but he calls him the spirit that is what? Now at work in the sons of disobedience who's pulling the strings in some sense the devil no in our age in our age we you know we're we're so enlightened we don't like to believe in those kind of things cuz we're too smart and educated and modern and we have microwaves and airplanes and smartphones we don't think those things really exist but they do there is a real devil and jesus came to destroy his works and one of the ways he does that is to free us from his power and his Outside of Christ, all mankind is dead in sin. Outside of Christ, all people are following the prince of the power of the air. In other words, as John says in verse 8, they are still of the what? Of the devil outside of Christ. But if you are in Christ by faith, you have been, John says it twice in verse 9, you have been born of whom? Born of God. He says it twice there, born of God. And if you're born of God, you're no longer of the devil You are no longer a child of wrath. You are no longer a son of disobedience because Christ has broken the power of sin and and wrath over you. That is why John says in verse 9, no one what? No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. John's not saying you won't sin. John isn't teaching perfectionism. He's not saying that you've arrived and you'll never sin again in this life. He's saying it won't be the pattern of your life. Rebellion and slavery to sin is no longer true of you if you were a Christian this morning. You're no longer enslaved to sin if you're in Christ. You're no longer under the dominion of the devil. You know, in this, in this life, and it's something that bears repeating often, and so I repeat it often, in this life, if, if you're a Christian, you will struggle with sin. If I were to say, how many of you struggle with sin? Every hand should go up if you're a Christian, that's you. You struggle with sin. You are living in Romans 7. And you're also living in Romans 8 and, and what, come, what is to come in Romans 8, but you're living in Romans 7. You still struggle with sin. Only Christians struggle with sin. Unbelievers are enslaved to it. You are not enslaved to it if you are a Christian. If you're a Christian, you struggle with sin, but sin is no longer your master and you will not uh, be ruled, and it will not be the rule and pattern of your life to be in rebellion against God. I must say that there are many who profess faith in Christ who, who do not appear to possess Christ by faith. That's why John says in verse 7, It's I mean, John's writing First John. I, mean, I know Rob has, has read a lot of First John before he prays every first Sunday. and uh, First John is written, just like Revelation, written also by John, is written to encourage Christians. It's written that, what does he say in 1 John 5, 13? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of of God, that you may, what? Know you have eternal life. He wants you to know. God wants you to know. John's not writing 1 John to to make us all, oh no, he's talking about me. Uh, Maybe I'm not really a Christian after all. That's not what he's saying. But he does say in verse 7, because some don't really believe, he says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. In other words, if you if you're professing Christ but living like the devil, he has a warning for you. You still don't know Christ yet. You haven't been born of him. If you're born of him, what does he say, whoever practices righteousness, whoever's life is marked not by rebellion but by obedience to God's commands is righteous and knows Christ truly. So John's not trying to discourage sincere believers who feel the weight And the struggle of their sins—it's not the point in this passage at all. Far from it. All he's trying to do in verse seven is to awaken uh, and to to uh, warn those who would who would try to keep their sins, try to keep on living in sin, and try to profess faith in Christ while living like a child of the devil. And so he's not teaching perfectionism. In fact, uh, Christ is sanctifying us in this life by His grace and power. But in this life, as far as you may go, as as high as you may attain. By God's grace in, in your sanctification, none of us in this room, no, no believer will reach sinless perfection and perfect holiness until Christ returns. Look what he says in verse two, back in verse two. He says, beloved, we are God's children now. You're not waiting for it to attain that status. If you're in Christ, you're, you're a child of God now. We are God's children now and what we will be has what? Not yet appeared. None of us, you can, you can look around or you can look in the mirror, none of us have reached glory yet. What we, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, when Christ returns, when he appears, we shall what? Be like him because we shall see him as he is. Now John uses that word appear all through this chapter. He appeared to take away sins. He appeared to, take, to destroy the works of the devil. And he says... That what we're going to be has not yet been revealed or appeared, but it will be, and when will that be? When will you finally, by God's grace, reach sinless perfection? Which should be our hope and our goal, when Christ returns. When we see him, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. John tells us that we'll be like him, but not yet. Not till he appears again in glory at his return. And so... You know that future glorification that we should look forward to and that we do look forward to in christ it it shouldn't make you sit back and say, "Well, you know one day it'll happen, and i'll wait for that to happen it should It should motivate us it should motivate us not to apathy and to sin but to seek to conform our lives more and more to what we 're going to be one day. you know many of the commands in scripture, the imperatives that that, that God gives us in his word you know, you know other than you know repent and believe in Christ. Most of the commands given to Christians as believers in in the New Testament epistles, you could summarize them as be what you are and aim at being what you're going to be one day when Christ returns. That's the goal in life. That's why he adds in verse 3 there, everyone who thus hopes in him, hopes what? Hopes for Christ's returning glory and hopes to be like him when we see him like he is. Everyone who thus hopes in him, Does what? Purifies himself as he is pure. We look forward to Christ's return and our glory in him. And so what that means is you won't be content to wait for it. If you really have the hope of heaven and look forward to the hope of heaven and, and finally being rid of the very presence of sin even in your life, Paul says, you know, aim at it now. And John says the same thing. That's what Paul says Uh, in, In Philippians 3, verses 8 to 11, he says, Indeed, Paul's giving us his own testimony. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish or dung in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And here it is. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What's Paul talking about? What's he, What does he mean by that? Is he saying, I'm going to work really hard and earn the resurrection from the dead? No, what he's saying is, He knows in this life he's not there and he's not going to get there, but he makes it his his goal. He wants to be now what he's going to be by God's grace in heaven after the resurrection, sinlessly perfect by God's grace and mercy. He wants to, to please his heavenly father as we should as well by walking more and more in newness of life by the power of the Holy Spirit within him. That should be our goal as well. Not to earn anything. He says right in that text in Philippians, not having a righteousness of my own. This isn't self-righteousness at all. It's, it's, It's aiming, it's pursuing the grace of God in sanctification by God's will, that more and more we might conform our lives to his will. So Jesus destroys the works of the devil by saving and transforming his people by his grace and power. That's one of the things that Jesus does and is doing and will do until he returns. Well, the third, the third way, and there's more than three ways, but every sermon should have three points, right? The third way Jesus destroys the works of the devil, and it's related to the first two. It's, he doesn't just change sinners, but he changes the world. You know, Rob talked about praying big prayers. Well, we should have a big view of what God is doing through his son, through his gospel. Um, that's the last way that we're going to look at this morning of, of the way Jesus is destroying the works of the devil, and that is why he came that first Christmas, and that's by changing the world. Now, at the end, we're reading through Revelation. We've been studying through that for the last year, uh, give or take. And, you know, what you could say that one of the messages of Revelation, one of the main messages is that Jesus is going to do all that once and for all, finally, when he returns. There will be a new heavens and new earth. He's going to wipe away every tear, no more death, no more misery and, and crying and pain. Uh, he's going to make all things new. He's going to come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, make all things new, and right every wrong. That's something we should look forward to. One day, all the wrongs are going to get made right. One day, all the, the things that are bad in this life, all the sin, all the misery, he's going to make all that right. He's going to make all things new, and we look forward to that day, or we should. Second Peter 3.13, Peter writes, but but according to his promise, We are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In which righteousness dwells. One day there will be no more sin and misery. There will be no more pain and death. That day is not yet, but it's coming. Because Jesus is the the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will make it so. He's making all the nations a footstool for his feet of the increase of his government, and his peace shall be what? No end. That is a literally true Promise, But in the meantime, the Lord Jesus is still, he's not waiting. Jesus is not sitting on his hands at the right hand of God saying, well, one day when I return, that's when I'll do something. He's reigning now. He's changing things now. He's ruling over all things for the sake of his church now. He's still changing the world by his gospel. He's changing the world literally, you could say, one sinner at a time. That's no small thing. He's changing the world one family at a time. That's no small thing. We might think of it as a small thing, but it's not. And he's even changing the world through all that, even one nation at a time. He's making all the nations a footstool for his feet. That's why in the Great Commission, what are we commanded to do? Go make disciples of all people, all individuals. He says that too, but all nations. Baptizing them and teaching them. You know, I I, I don't know about you, but... It's easy for us. It's easy for me, anyway, to get discouraged sometimes about the state of things in the world around us. And somebody was visiting me at the office this week and mentioned uh, watching the news stressed him out. And I said, "Well, gee, <laughs> that's their job. Their job is to rile you up and tell you everything is bad. Not that there aren't bad things to be riled up about, but it's they're going to fo- you know what's the saying? If it if it bleeds, it leads. Their job isn't to give you good news." Certainly not the good news, but it's it's easy to be discouraged by the way things are. It's easy to look around even in our own land and be discouraged about the way things are going and maybe you wonder sometimes what is God doing? You know, Lord's reigning, what's he doing here? Is he what what is he up to in our in our country? I think sometimes we might think that not much is happening. But I think sometimes we forget just how dark this world was before Christ came on that first Christmas. We're so used to the way things are. And, and the spread and the influence of the gospel in our land and elsewhere in the world, that we kind of, I think, forget just how dark this world really was before Christ came and died and rose again, and his gospel started going forth in power. Now, before he came, the entire world was in utter darkness and unbelief. You know, God was working prime, not only through, but primarily through one small little group of people and one small little strip of land uh, in Israel at the time. And everything else, if you break out your globe, break out your world map, and cover everything else in black magic marker. That's kind of what the world was like. When you think of the, of the time when Christ came, and even the Roman Empire, the, the, the context in which Christ uh, was born, was a dark place. That was the civilized world, where Herod could order every male child under two to be slaughtered. Because he was trying, why did he do that? He was of the evil one. He was trying to stop the gospel from starting by killing Christ, and God did not allow that to happen. It's a satanic thing, just like the same kinds of things are now. But the world was full of darkness and death and despair and superstition and false religion and every evil thing you can imagine. The vast majority of the world was under the dominion of the devil. That changed when Christ came. That changed when he... Died on the cross and rose again, and when he ascended to the right hand of God, he wasn't, his ascension is his enthronement. When we confess in the Apostles' Creed, he sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, it's, being seated there is not an indication of inactivity. It's an indication that he's reigning, he's enthroned, he's ruling over all things now, and then at the end, what do we say? He shall return, you know, with glory to judge the living and the dead, the Nicene Creed. William Hendrickson, in his book, You have to forgive me, I've got revelation on the brain since I've been preaching through it, but this this quote jumped off the page at me. In his book, uh, More Than Conquerors, which is about revelation, William Hendrickson writes this, The influence of the gospel upon the thought and life of mankind can scarcely be overestimated. In some countries, the blessed truths of Christianity affect human life in all its phases, political, economic, social, and intellectual. Only the individual who lacks the historic sense and is therefore unable to see the present in light of the conditions which prevailed throughout the world before Christ's ascension can fail to appreciate the glories of the millennial age in which we are now living. This prophecy in Psalm 72 is being fulfilled before our eyes. And this is the promise he's talking about from Psalm 72 verse 8. May he have dominion, or he will have dominion. May he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. We sing a a, a psalter version of that. I was tempted to pick it, but it's not a Christmas song, so I didn't. I didn't want to get uh, things thrown at me. It's uh, the ends of all the earth shall fear, shall hear, and turn unto the Lord in fear. It's Psalm seventy-two. And that's, it's what's happening now through the gospel, that all the nations are being made disciples and being made his footstool. Jesus Christ is God's anointed king, and his rule right now extends how far? Doesn't always seem like it, but his rule extends from, to the ends of the earth, even to all the nations. And one day that rule will be made fully manifested for all to see. Just as the wise men on that first Christmas bowed down to worship him who has been born king of the Jews, Matthew 2, 2 Even so, his reign shall know no end. And as Revelation says, he shall reign how long? Forever. He's doing all that right now. Jesus is destroying the works of the devil. Amen. Let's, let's pray.